You're listening to the City Lights Podcast. City Lights is a church located in Greenville, South Carolina, devoted to building family, blessing neighbors, and bringing good news to the nations. Thanks for joining us. If you have your eyes on James chapter 5, uh, my question to get us going this morning is what was the best gift your parents ever gave you? When you're six years old and, uh, you know, you uh, woke up that Christmas morning and, and uh, your parents had uh, maybe didn't have the job or didn't have the means, but uh, they got your list and, and got you the thing and you just wanted it and you were so excited or, or uh, maybe that birthday present of the thing that you didn't even dare to ask your parents because it would be too, too outlandish and somehow they, they put it together and got it for you. Or maybe it's just a, a thoughtful gift, like something you didn't know that you need, but they got it for you. Anyways, what was your favorite gift that you ever got you know, from your parents? Um, I, uh, I don't look like it, but uh, my, my hero growing up was Dave Matthews' uh, band. And so uh, I always wanted to play uh, the Watchtower and Ants Marching and Stone and, and play all those things to a T. And when you want to be Dave Matthews, you have to have Dave Matthews' guitar. And so I was saving up my money uh, to move out of my Epiphone 610 or whatever it was that went out of tune every song and a half. And uh, went and just my goal was a low floor. Just get in there, get a, get a guitar, then go out of tune. I was going to get a $600 Taylor guitar. And uh, so I would go in there every week and just kind of like visualize my future, you know, with these uh, guitars in the soundproof room and play, you know, Led Zeppelin, uh, a stairway to heaven too many times before the guy would kick me out of there from the guitar center. Uh, uh, until one day, my dad came into town. Uh, he'd always come in the summer. My parents were split and he came and visit and he took me over there and, you know, kind of did his little Asian thing, like looking around at all the different guitars. And, uh, and he asked me which guitar I was looking at. This is the $600 one. See, Dad, it doesn't go out of tune. I'm going for, you know, the, the floor, not the ceiling. I get $600, and I've got $300 saved up or whatever it was. And he was like, Oliver, you know, something that you need to understand about life. And by the way, this is a cheapskate. Like, this guy, if your dad is cheap, he would, like, you know, just steal ketchups from McDonald's and bring them home and just put them in a jar. Like, this guy was just couldn't squeeze two pennies together. He was like, but here's the thing. When you buy the, well, the big things in life, you either buy one, you buy, you buy, uh, buy expensive or you buy twice. He's like, don't buy cheap, you'll have to buy it twice. And so he took my little, you know, pointed my gaze at the far right of those guitars that nobody ever even touches because they're just there uh, to take pictures with and go home, you know. And he bought me a 710 cutaway Taylor guitar, uh, which was $2,400 at the time in the 90s, which was a pretty big deal and far cry from my 600. And I still have it, and I didn't have to buy it twice because I listened, because my dad paid for it, really. Uh, but I also listened to his <laughs> advice, so that was a pretty one, good one. Um, my, dad, my mom, when I was about 16, got me a Nissan Altima, which is the way Chris, Chris Rock and Altima is what I uh, got when I was 16. And it was, uh, I was saving up for the DeLorean. Same thing. I had the $3,000 base, but then she like meet me. So I got the $3,000. The $3,000 was going to get the, 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 the DeLorean looking, you know, uh, with the headlights that popped up a cord that was probably going to break down the minute after I got it off the lot. Um, she gave me the extra three to get a Nissan Altima. It was, it was tan interior. It had a cool looking green and a, and a sunroof on the top. And, um, and, and it had, it was crazy. It had about this this morning, a display on the front that like put the speedometer on the front down to the digit. It would reflect it like a hologram. Boy, before even Elon Musk was alive, it was doing this. So um, I, I always say that my, uh, my conservative driving had a lot to do with in the beginning. I always knew to the T exactly how fast I was going because of my, my Nissan Altima. Um, but if you think about those gifts, when you think about the things that your parents scrounged together to give you and it brought you a lot of joy, not because you had the thing, but also because you felt so loved and seen, um, when you really think about the greatest gifts that your parents ever gave you, the greatest gifts the parents, uh, the, that your parents and my parents ever gave us was not so much, you know, the stuff that they bought us, so much as the stuff that they taught us. Um, the stuff that they taught us. Like, like the guitar and the car were great gifts because actually they brought something out of us. 
The best gifts are not just the things that you wear and throw away. It's the stuff that makes you have to learn the song, that actually makes you realize, now that I have a car, I can go to places I want to go. Where do I want to go? Like, it brings something out of you. And more than that, the lessons that they teach you, like, I, I never for a day in my life ever feared running. My dad wasn't a churchgoer, so we do church at the track. And we'd go out there, and for him, it wasn't something that you do because the football coach was mad at you. He'd just do it because it's, like, a great way to spend Sunday morning. And so I always looked at running that way. You know, I always looked at running as a, as a fun thing to do, and that work was a fun thing to do, that work isn't a, a, a punishment, it's a privilege, it's an opportunity to exert yourself and do things. And, and my mom would make me, you know, uh, give one of my toys to like the little charitable, uh, you know, um, Boys and Girls Club or whatever for Christmas, the one toy that I would give away, and she'd always te- teach me um, to listen more, to, to be caring and that sort of thing. And so it's not just the things that they buy you, but the things that they teach you that are really the residual, the really the best gifts that we walk away out of our homes at 18 with. And so looking back, I have it on the screen, the greatest gifts our parents gave us were not just what they bought us, but what they taught us, because what they bought us affected what we'd have, but what they taught us impacted and affected who we are. And the gift of character is the gift that keeps on giving, because the gift of character impacts the way you receive every other gift. If a person doesn't have the character and the wholeheartedness um, to know what a marriage is, then a marriage will only be a curse if, if if the person that's receiving it doesn't have the character to receive it. A vacation, you can go on this great vacation, and how many of you guys know you can be on a stupid vacation and you have the heart of Jesus and, and joy and contentment in your heart? You can have a stupid vacation and enjoy it. You can have a great vacation and be so entitled, right, and privileged that you can't experience the gift that's actually in front of you because if you don't have the character to receive a gift, you almost can't receive any other gift. Same thing with friendship and work and every other thing. It almost seems like the character that we have teaches us whether the thing coming at us is a, is a gift or if it's a curse in and of itself because character is the gift that keeps on giving and affects every, every other gift. So as we close up James chapter 5 and we think back and remember the beginning of James chapter 1, they're not just all these fortune cookie little sayings. It is a thesis that he's building out, and it is that it's good. The thesis that James is working on is that God is good, and he only gives good and perfect gifts, and this is what the good and perfect gift it turns out to be is. James 1, chapter 1, or James 1, verse 2, remember in the beginning it says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because even those are gifts in a way. Whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance, and the perseverance is there to finish its work, so that you may be, that's the word we've been looking at, whole, mature, perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect, to make you whole, to make you mature, to make you complete, and not lacking anything. You see, all the way along, when he's talking about favoritism in the tongue and and slander and, and, and faith without works, what he's really getting at is God is good, and he's trying to give us a gift. All of this life is a gift to be received. And this is what the gift is. James teaches us that the good and perfect gift is not necessarily the escape from your circumstance or uh, the thing that you wish that you had or the thing that your neighbor has that you wish that you had. The good and perfect gift is wholeness in Christ. This is the greatest, greatest and perfect gift. It's the character of Christ. What you want and what you need more than anything, what really should be the heart of all your prayers is to be f- so free, so free from the, the tyranny of other people's approval that you can actually walk in the sonship and the wholeness that you've been created to walk in. And he would spare nothing or give you nothing that would get in the way of that because that's the greatest gift more so than the job that you want. It is the ability to walk from the, from the free of the fear of man. It's the ability to walk free of substance. It's to not have to run into every little Instagram post and figure out little ice cream cones that can make you survive your day. Like he wants you, he has a life, a gift that's greater than that. And so the trial even is a gift because it's getting you to the greatest gift. The greatest gift that you can ever have is to think like Christ and to walk through your life Free, free of appetite in that, in that regard. To free of your, of your own ambition. 
of your, own, of your own dreams that are actually prisons, to free you up from the American dream to actually live in the kingdom of God. That's the greatest gift that he could ever give you. And so the good and perfect gift is that thing, wholeness in Jesus. So in a day like this, in 2023, we should ask ourselves a really important question. If there's anything trendier right now in American culture, right, other than, you know, in terms of the way we do life and church and school, if there's anything that, the Mer- that we're talking about more than anything, it's wholeness. It's holistic stuff. We want to walk to work, and we want to, you know, take our kids to the swamp rabbit and teach them about gravity because the apple fell off the tree. You know, we want to see a holistic life. We don't want to see a mechanized life. We don't want to see a machine church with all the programs and the nuts and the bolts. We want to see something that's living and whole and vital. Isn't that what we want? We want something that's whole. But shouldn't it create a paradox, a tension in you that in an era that we're aiming at wholeness, we are still so vitally broken? That I'm on the swamp rabbit trail the other day of this guy who's like riding his bike and he should be in the most peace of his life. He's pushing little kids out of the way on his journey to wholeness and exercise. We're aiming for wholeness, but we're missing it so far. Why is it that we are aiming for, how could you aim for something and miss it so bad? And there's a reason James has been telling us, because there's a cost to it. It's just not, it's just not easy, soothing, and, 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 and feel good. Wholeness, wholeness is the walk to work. It is teaching our kids in Montessori ways but it's also feeding the poor. It's also confronting racial injustice in your your daily life. Wholeness does have to do with your healing and forgiving your past of your father, but it also has to do with your money in your pocket and the fact that you think that that belongs to you. That's also part of wholeness. Or your philosophy about what you believe about the unborn has to do with wholeness. Or what you believe about your bedroom, that's part of wholeness. We cannot receive the healing of wholeness without the confrontation of wholeness. So this is what um, Tyler Stanton over at Bridgetown Church said. I thought he has a series, uh, sermon on there you should listen to. It's called Embodied Faith. I think it's great. He says, everybody loves Mother Teresa. Everybody loves faith with works. Everybody wants to see a holistic faith, but they seldom count the cost. If you want a holistic kingdom, one that is real enough to touch and real enough to be touched by, real enough to heal and real enough to be healed by, you must also accept the kingdom that is real enough to confront and to be confronted by. That it's not just a, just a, a soothing thing. It's also, there, there, there is a, a strengthening thing that happens when it comes to the body of Christ and you and I in terms of wholeness. Wholeness is trendy and rare because it is a gift that comes from God. It's not a reward, and it's only received by faith. So as we close up James chapter 5, this is his main message, and it's not a George, it sounds like a George Michael song, but it's, it's not. James said it first. It's to have faith. That wholeness is a gift that comes, but it doesn't come through psychology. It doesn't come through popular psychology just because, you know, we have these names and these these, these categories of people and we're trying to balance our relationships and aim at self-care. Like, wholeness can't come by psychology. It comes through faith. You know what? Atheism, for example. Atheism cannot bring about wholeness. And here's why. Because there's a part of wholeness that suffers too long and has to wait too long. And atheism has no grid for that. Sometimes our wholeness doesn't come until the other side. And so atheism has no vehicle to get to wholeness because wholeness requires faith. This is what he would say. And so this this is what I think... Uh, James is saying in, in James chapter 5 is to have faith. And this is how I know he's Baptist because he literally says three Ps, so I just found him, okay? Have faith, and this is what he says, be patient, be perseverant, and be, be prayerful. James chapter 5, verse 7, be patient, he says. Then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming, see how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too, be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you'll be judged. The judge is standing at the door. James creates a sermon illustration for what this whole becoming whole, coming out of a fractured, hypocritical life and being put back together again in wholeness in the Holy Spirit 
that the picture that he provides for us is not that of a business and a, and, and a CEO, but that of a farmer. The illustration that James provided for our journey towards wholeness is not that of Lee Iacocca and an org chart and a business and a startup. He, he presents to us instead an alternative vision, which is the vision of a farmer in a field, patiently tending to a crop. So when you think about you know, farmers, you think about why that is, is that the farmer can't just have one little idea. The farmer doesn't have just one little seed and he plants it and then it either buds or it doesn't bud. And if it doesn't bud, it's not a success. And if it does bud, the farmer doesn't just plant one little seed. The farmer scattered seeds because he understands that not every seed is going to bloom or certainly not instantaneously. And then after that, he works or she works. And the farmer works and tends and, and doesn't always see the results right away. And he better sign up for that or she better sign up for that. If she thinks she's going to plant a carrot in, the, in Monday and then see a carrot on Tuesday, that's you're going to set yourself up for failure because, because it doesn't always happen right away. And at the end of the day, the farmer can work as hard as they possibly can. And, and certain season, that farmer will work as hard as they did in every other season. But after they get done working, they see no fruitfulness. Because at the end of the day, they understand that the crop is a gift. And they're at the mercy of rain. And so farming is basically working hard without control. Being a farmer is working as hard as you can. And sometimes it's not working out. And thus, that is the picture that James gives us for our journey to wholeness. Because it's a gift and because it's received by faith and it's not a reward. And so we might apply it in this way. It's just like, if our expectation that every time that we open up Scripture, the, the, the clouds are going to part and God's hand's going to reach down, he's going to speak to us and there's going to be revival every time we open the Bible, we're probably not going to become people of the Bible. The fruit of what God wants to do in the Scriptures is not going to happen because we had one time in the Bible that there's got to be some, some labor, some, some, some nurturing that goes on in the seeds that he wants to do, that community is not just going to spring up because we just showed up to the one small group, that we might have to go a few times and have a few awkward conversations or maybe be part of a few parts of community for the fruit, because it's, a, because it's fruit, because it's a reward, and it's not an assembly line. Or, I mean, it's a gift, it's not an assembly line. Or mission and neighbor, and so on and so forth, but sometimes that, that the fruit does not always connect um, proportionately with the faithfulness, is what I mean. So does anybody here remember how, how awful it was to be in middle school? Can we just take a minute and just remember and be grateful for where you are right now? Like, if anybody's mad, just be glad you're not in middle school, because you could be doing what you're doing, but in middle school. It's really bad. You know, it's brutal. And that's the thing is because basically you're in this adult world with all these adult problems and these grades that really matter, but you don't know where you, you don't even know which foot, what, where your left foot is. You don't know where you are. You don't know what this is called. You don't even know where your mom lives. You could probably get lost and like, that would be it. You'd never see her again. You know, like this is how bad it is. I remember, um, and don't judge me because you have your middle school stories too, but I got the microphone, so here I am. I was in middle school one time and the cool, kid was, uh, cool kids were like coming down uh, the mall. This is in, uh, this is in uh, mall in South, South Bend, Indiana. And, um, and I'm sitting there, and the cool kids are coming, and, um, and that's the thing, you know, you can't choose things if you don't know that you have the options to do them. And so if you don't know that the options, you can't choose them. And so here comes the quarterback, and I have options. Right now, if I was a decent human being, I'd probably get up and just go talk to them or wave at them and say, hey, but that probably would have been social suicide for them. So to be honest, that probably wasn't a smart idea. Probably what I would have done is just get up and go to the bathroom, okay? That was also a viable option, coulda, shoulda, woulda. If I would have thought of it, probably would have done it. Look the other way. These are all great options. You know what I did out of the all the options? I didn't see those options as opportunities. You know what I did? I just pretended like I was asleep. So I sat on the bench, and as they came, I just pretended like I was a possum and just fell asleep. And they walked by, and I have no idea if that worked out for me. Probably didn't, okay? But that's, that's something that went on. I remember I broke up uh, with a girl before I started dating uh, the lovely Kyra um, with, uh, with a little note. I just wrote a little note. I said, it's over, babe. I'm just kidding. I don't know what I said, but I was like, you know, I broke up with the girl. I folded a note and I put it in her locker. I never talked to her again. The next day, I just pretended like I wasn't her, wasn't her boyfriend anymore. And she Facebooked me one time and she was like, you remember that time I bro you broke up with my locker? And I was like, I did. I broke up with your locker. 
um, I sat in Mr. Armstrong's science class. This is ninth grade now. It kind of, I was a late bloomer. And I literally could not have told you the subject he taught. He gave me a D minus because he didn't want to see me again, basically. But I sat there, and I could not tell you one single thing for nine months. Only a middle schooler could sit there and literally have zero. They just don't have any, any uh, random access memory in their head to remember anything. But little did I know, like, what was that, 1998, I graduated in 2002. Like in three years, 2001, 2002, in three years, how much changes is from middle school to high school? Oh, I figure out where I am. I figure out I have feelings. I figure out I have decisions and choices. From middle school to high school is a big jump. By the time I was in junior high school, I you know, joined the basketball team, and I played tennis, and I was dating Kyra, and I had come to know the Lord, and I'd fallen out. There's such a vast array in just three years. And I remember getting that diploma on that 2002 day, and I remember thinking about my middle school self and looking at those cringy photos that I was in and the screen name that I had back then. And I, and I just thought to myself, I wish I could just go back and just tell myself, listen, it's just a, it's just a few short years. It's just a few short years that you're going to be in there with those stupid kids and that stupid teacher, all those kids that are drinking and partying, they're going to have a beer gut within three years. <laughs> and all the painful awkwardness you're going to realize is actually kind of cool because it's you figuring out who you are and who you, want, who you are and who you're being created to be is way better than copycatting anybody else. Like, it just takes a few years in your, in your perspective shifts. But you, it doesn't feel like that in the moment. But once you get to high school, you wish you could just go back and say, listen, it's just a few short years. And I think that's what James is after here in this first passage. He's telling us, listen, the trial that you're in it's going to take longer than you want it to. Like, you're not probably just going to be able to sing a song on Sunday and then come into church and leave and everything in your marriage gets sorted out. Maybe it will. But most likely, most likely, if, if, if wholeness is a journey of like being a farmer, it's going to take longer than you, than you want it to. But here's the other thing that's ironic about it. When you look back on it, you're going to realize it, it happened quicker than you think. In just a few short years... That boss that you're at tension with and all the fight, you know what? Like, he's probably not going to be there anymore. And the conflict that you're in of the person that, like, says that they're humble, but they're actually being arrogant, and they're looking down on you, and they don't know it, and they're blind to it, God's going to oppose them, and they're going to they're get confronted. And it's just going to be a few short years. And right now, you think that everything has to happen right now, and you're trying to take things in your own hand, but he's saying, like, most of this wholeness thing, like, some of it might be a strategy change, but some of it's just be patient. Some of it is outlasts how many people start things and don't finish them. It's just a few short years. And here's the other thing. It's better than you would ever know. It's better. Than, well, here's what you really want. You want to be able to walk into situations and not have the people's opinions change about you, but your feelings about how much your, their opinions matter. That's what he really wants to do. And it's better than you know. It's better than you know to be free of people's opinions, to be free of that next high, that next stimulating thing, that next whatever. It's like that freedom in Christ that God wants to give you, that wholeness is worth more than you understand it. It's longer than you want, quicker than you think, and better than you know is I think what I gather from James. So he continues on, he says, Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord's full of compassion and full of mercy. So what James is saying here is not just that we're supposed to be patient, but we're supposed to persevere. In other words, patience isn't passivity. He's calling brothers and sisters as our journey to wholeness is not just to go like a dead, you know, fall asleep like a possum <laughs> in a mall and wake me up when this is over. But he's calling us to stand firm in that, not just to be passive, but to stand firm and bless the Lord. In other words, I put it this way, persevering means I'm not just going to bless God at the end of the trial. I'm going to bless God right now in the middle of it. I'm going to choose to sing the song that only I can sing in this moment when I don't have the answers. I'm going to choose to take the step of faith that I 
can't afford once I have all the answers right now because perseverance doesn't mean being passive. It means blessing God in the middle of the trial that we're in right now. And therefore, he gives us the example of Job. Job is that guy in the middle of your Bible in the wisdom literature who has everything and loses everything. And a lot like most of us, here's the thing that happens, the Bible wants us to know, when you have everything and lose everything, is you're going to have a whole bunch of people that are attracted to you that have a bunch of opinions on why you lost everything. You're going to have lots of friends that are going to tell you, well, if you were more like me and you did X, Y, Z, then you wouldn't have it, do you see? And they're coming over and you're asking you, well, did you do it this way? Did you do it that way? Because they need to create a sense of order and shape in their life because they want to find a reason why you're there and they're there so they can never come over to the place that you're at and protect themselves from the, 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 the suffering that's befallen you. But sometimes these things don't have answers. And so God tests Job, not because he's unrighteous, because he is righteous. And the enemy is coming to the counsel of God, claiming that Job is only good because God's given him good things, not because he trusts in the Lord. And so he tests Job and all the opinions come. And even his own wife say, to curse God and die. And so, so really, there's two different camps that talk to Job. One of the camps basically says that suffering happens because you've done something wrong. Suffering happens because you didn't raise your kids the right way, or suffering happens because you didn't pray enough, or suffering happens because you didn't have enough faith, or suffering happens because you weren't righteous, and suffering da 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 You might create a sense of logic and, 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 and continuity and congruency in life by saying that man must have done something wrong. But the other side of it, some of his friends say, is that suffering happens because God has done something wrong, and God is not good. And God actually uses cancer to teach people lessons. And God, you know, isn't actually, you know, for helping the poor and the needy. And God doesn't love people. That, that we have to create some reconciliation of the right here and right now. If suffering is true, then either man did something wrong or God did something wrong. But suffering can't just happen for no reason is the thing that it wrestles with. And here's the conclusion. At the end of the book, if you read it, God kind of takes Job on this, like, intergalactic little tour of the universe and he shows them the little mountain lines where they eat and the cows. And he shows them the trees and the waves. And he's like, do you do this? Do you do this? Do you know how this works? And all of a sudden, Job's in this place, the place that you and me would be if we looked at the org chart. Of running the universe is a lot of hard work. It's probably beyond our capacity. I could barely run my life and, and my budget, let alone the universe. And then ultimately, God is good. And executing justice in the earth does not mean that he does it immediately. If you were to execute justice on the earth immediately, we'd all be in big trouble, first of all. But second of all, everything would fall apart all at once. Third of all, you wouldn't be able to worship in the situation you, you were in. And fourth of all, and this is maybe the most important thing, you wouldn't have the option to bless him when you had other options on the table. He has provided for us options within this test to go after money and to go after fighting and to blame it on your neighbor and to blame it on your sister and to blame it on all these other things to give us an option to say and do what we can do in this season that we can't do the next, which is bless God when we don't understand it. To bless God, not at the end of the test, but in the middle of the tests. And so pain, pain is relative to what you believe about the goodness of God. We were talking about, um, uh, to a nurse one time at a doctor's uh, office, and, and they have a chart um, with a little smiley faces on it, and it helps kids and really grown adults, 39-year-olds, explain to the doctor how much pain they're in. There's a smiley face over the with 0% with, uh, pain, and then there's like a really angry face, like I could just hit somebody in the face because I'm so angry of how much pain I'm going, and that's a positive 10. And you talk to the nurse, and the reason why that thing is on, because you think this is modern medicine, like isn't the, uh, the, the, the pulling of a wisdom tooth, isn't that like the same amount of pain from one patient to the next? Or having a baby, isn't that the same amount of pain? Or, or, or you know, getting, getting a broken arm, isn't that the same amount of pain? Why do we have to have a chart to have subjectivity to the way that we rate our pains? And you know what, the reason why we have those charts is because pain is not, you know, consistent, it's relative. It's not objective, it's relative to, to, to the person individually. And so, you know, for example, did you, know, did you guys know this? Uh, uh, apparently, the study has been done that actually, that delivering a baby, some of the babies in the room, delivering the baby is actually more pain than getting shot. Did you know that? 
I've never heard a person say, man, I hope my due date comes sooner so I can go down and get shot at the doctor's office, right? But how many, how many ladies are, are thrilled and excited because of the purpose and the pain? What's beyond the pain that changes their psychological experience with that pain greatly impacts the relative experience that they have in that pain. Have you ever stubbed your toe on a really bad day? Like, I'm a tough guy and I play basketball and one time I broke my arm and I kept on playing. Like, I didn't even notice it. But you stub me on my, my toe on the wrong day and I will just, the Hulk smash will come out of me because I'm so enraged, right? Because pain is psychologically relative. Even this one, I heard about this is that, did you know that if you allow the patient to decide the painkiller, that they're actually more likely to withstand more pain because they know that they're in control of their, of their, of their comfort and they don't have to wait and trust in another person. All that to say, the way that we experience not just the feeling and sensation of pain, but the fear behind it is what ultimately affects our suffering. The fear, what I believe about why this pain is coming to me and the purpose it's coming to me matters so much in whether or not I bless God in it. So consequently, this moment that is coming to us to either break us or build it, so much matters and is at stake is whether or not you believe that God is good and doing good as this pain is coming to you. That, matter, that fork in the road is incredibly important for whether or, this, whether or not this thing is wasted or whether it builds us up. So this is the question I have for you. This is what Job discovered, but it's still up to faith for you and I. In your suffering and the pain that's coming, is God still good? Is God good and only doing good in your life? Because that will deeply impact the way that you experience the next, uh, the next uh, sensations that you will have emotionally, physically, spiritually in your life. Right now, you are, you are serving somebody. And if you would have known how ugly and tangled up it is to get down with people that are problematic and sinning and you're trying to serve them, Maybe you're thinking about, I wouldn't have signed up for this in the first place because of how entangled it's all gotten because you've gotten in the mix and the mess of serving messy people. And whether or not you believe that God is good is the difference between you believing that you've become a doormat in this situation, being taken advantage of, and so you need to lash out and defend yourself, or you're being made a servant. All of that has to do with whether or not you believe that God is good and bringing good gifts, that he is developing you as a shepherd, that he is teaching you to be shaped in the character of Jesus. This moment is coming to you either for one of those two ways, to make you a doormat or make you a servant, and only your faith can tell you the answer to that question. Is God good? Is God good in your finances? I don't know if you guys have checked your finances lately, but apparently milk and eggs is just for the rich people now. Well, I'm, I'm out of class. I can't even get milk and eggs now. This is how bad it is. I have enough money to, to sleep and eat at Aldi, and that's about it. That's like where I'm at with these gas prices, okay? And you have an opportunity. If God is, if, if God is fickle, then you are a loser. Then you are abandoned and you are alone. And that emotional thing, you are not meant to bear that because that is not who you are and that's not who God But if you are in Christ and God is good, then this moment has come to you as an opportunity, as a gift, as a gift to strengthen you in this test. And maybe there's an opportunity to learn how to live with less. You know what's funny about not having options? It makes you super focused. You don't have to think about the car that you could have, should have afford, or maybe I should go get this boat, or maybe you don't have to think about any of that kind of stuff because those doors are closed. And at least if you know the doors are closed, you know which one to walk through. Your decision fatigue has just gotten remediated a bit. Is God good? Is he bringing something good? Are you a loser? Are you living in victory? Does that person's success, them winning, really mean that you lost? Does that person having what you wish you had mean that if you would have done what they did, you would get what they got? Or is it an opportunity to trust God to give you what only he can give you and believe that the thing that he has in store for you is better than any other life if it wasn't for your blindness, you would be not looking over to the left and the right. You'd be looking dead set on what God has called you to because the life that God has for you is better than any other life that you can see to your left or your right. It's all interpreted by the fear of the faith. Is this moment coming to you for good or for harm? And that will deeply affect whether or not you can praise him right now or have to wait until later. Verse 12, above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear 
by the heavens or by the earth or by anything else. All you need is to say is a simple yes or no. Otherwise, you will be condemned. Lots going on in these little verses here, but basically he's just saying swearing is, also, is about saying you know, the no-no words, but also swearing is about on my mama, on my mama's grave. Why do we have to put emphasis on our truth if we're not always speaking truth all the time? To spin things to control. You see, that's the thing about worship is worship is nothing if it doesn't have options. And the test has come to us to blame others, to go and grab at money, to go and idle off of other things, or simply let our yes be yes and our no be no, to be small in light of a big God that's better than our circumstances and bigger than our circumstances and really receive the gift without having to take it. That's the choice that comes out of our yes and our no. Verse 13, if anyone among you is in trouble, let them pray. If anyone's happy, let them sing songs of praise. If anyone among you is sick, let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up, and if they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Basically, what I get from this passage is to pray all the time. If you're in trouble right now, you should pray about it. But also, if you're having a great day, you know, you're just as much at risk if you're in trouble because your heart could get sick. But also, if you're overly happy and you pine after your own pride and your idolatry, that's also a dangerous place to pray. Play. So if you're, if you're in trouble, you should pray so that you're humble. And if you're happy right now, you should pray so you don't get arrogant. And also, if you're sick, you should pray because God hears all these prayers and God does move. Prayer is not just to change man's heart. Prayer is to move God's heart. And God answers prayers. God makes things true the minute after you prayed something that was not true before you prayed it. I believe in sovereignty, but I also believe that you can't read this Bible without seeing faith. And your faith matters. I'm not saying that if something doesn't happen, it's not because you didn't have enough faith. I'm just saying for whatever we know, we are called to do what we can do, and that's to pray. We should never find ourselves without prayer because prayer is the way that we walk through this trial with God together. Prayer is the, is the source of forgiveness. Also, the other thing that I would want to say, because um, we don't have time for it, uh, to expedite for a mission Sunday next, next week, is also that he's calling us to pray, not as experts, but as children. Like he says to go get an elder and put oil on the head because this guy apparently was too sick to get out of bed. But if you can get out of bed, you should go to a small group because those people have the anointing too. And you shouldn't believe that some pastor has the ability to pray for you that your small group leader, the person next to you, because it's not about seminary, it's about faith. It's about simply asking God for what he already told you to ask him and praying in his will. And that's why he says, go to the elder or go to your small group and pray for healing because he answers all of our prayers. And so verse 17 says, Elijah was a human being. He emphasizes there that we're children, we're not experts, we're not Jedi. Even as we are, he prayed earnestly that it would not rain when it wasn't supposed to rain. And he did not, it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. And again, he prayed and the heavens gave rain when it was time to give rain. And the earth produced its crops. Ultimately, the... the the prayer of faith is to pray the will of God. It's to pray. It literally says in the Greek to pray about praying. Go to God, ask God what he wants to do, and then ask him to do what he wants to do. That's what prayer is. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. So, so, we're, so as a human being, even Elijah, this powerful prophet, prayed, and he, and he aligned himself um, with, with the will of God, both in the time of, of plenty and, and both in the time of famine. And so uh, as we kind of close up ch chapter five and really the whole book of James and, and, and think about it on a zoom out perspective, it makes me think about this book they made me read um, to become a youth pastor um, by Chap Clark in the early 2000s called Hurt. And this book was basically, it was, it was pretty, I think, progressive. I think it was kind of ahead of its time in the way that people were doing youth ministry. But basically, the thesis was this, is that basically these, these kids, and as popular they are, football, quarterback, all that stuff, nerds, whatever, they're all coming in. And, and, and to be an adolescent in, in this age, not only the modern age, but any other, but the adolescent age is a painful thing. To understand that when you're a youth pastor, you are caring for hurt kids, that kids are coming in, 
And one of the things that could either make things better or worse is that oftentimes the places where kids go in adolescence tend to value the program over the person. Like in other words, like that coach doesn't care about the kid as much as the kid is going to help him win. And when that, that program, when that program's value invades and, and, and erupt, interrupts the natural human process, then usually the program elevates and the kid gets put down. And so we have a bunch of hurt kids. And may the church not be a place that continues to hurt kids. Can the church be a place that can shepherd and keep away hired hands and wolves and to lay down lives for sheep? Can, can the church be a safe haven and a place for kids and adults and sheep to come and get healed when they're hurt? That's kind of what the point of it is. And one of the, the points that I always remembered, even in ministry and adult ministry too, is that basically what he's saying is that trial, it's not really the program's fault. Or it's, the, it's, the, it's the era we live in. It's not the millennial age or the modern age. It's just the, the fallen world that we live in causes people to, to be hurt. So the trials and the tribulations and the tests, those things are non-negotiable. Those are going to happen. Really, the question, though, is that when those trials and tribulations come, the question for that kid, and really for the youth pastor, too, is whether they'll walk through the trials together or alone. That the trials, the great trials, consider it joy, brothers and sisters, when great trials come your way, because the same trials that can come to shatter you and break you and the trauma that basically leaves you seven different people in seven different situations being mastered by approval and drug and addiction and, and self-gratification and pride, that the same types of trials that can shatter you can actually still build you up in his hands. They're actually a gift if only you would walk with Jesus through them. This moment has come to us to make or break us only based on the fact of if we walk through it with or without Jesus and with or without community around us. The people that actually heal from trauma, that's what trauma is, right? That's what James was speaking above his time. Trauma is a fragmented life. It's a life that has so much pain that we actually have to put it in little boxes and bury it because we don't know how to handle it. Until somebody, until somebody says something we don't like and it triggers us and we haven't dealt with the pain that's there and so it lashes out. And that's what, that's what a, a trigger is. It's an, it's, a, it's an uncared for, undiscipled emotion that is stuffed away under a rug and only growing in mold and disease. And so when it, gets, when it gets poked on, it just comes up and attacks our spouse or our kids. And so life will come with trial and will come with trauma. There is nobody here in this room without, that, without trauma. And so that's, that, that is the universal truth. But here's, here's what, what is at stake, is the opportunity to walk through that thing with fear or with faith. That's the choice you have. To walk through, consider it joy. And here's how you can have joy, because you're walking through it knowing God is good. And this moment has only come for my good. And this moment has only come to give me the greatest gift, which is not the relief of pain, but the wholeness of Jesus. And so what's at stake is not will you walk through this trial. You will. And if Jesus is your Savior, you will walk through it in, 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 in a whole place. You will completely get to the other side of this. But for now, the enjoyment of wholeness is really on the stake. Will you walk through this pain by yourself or with him? Will you walk through this pain? and continue to be fractured and splintered, or will you walk through it growing in wholeness because you invite others into your life that you're walking alongside with? This moment will actually create bonding and relationship that you deeply need that wouldn't have happened if it wasn't he was turning every circumstance for good and glory in his name. Will you walk together or alone, patiently in perseverance and in prayer? I want to invite the band to come forward and, um, and put up the intentional question for the Holy Spirit to speak to us. Um, also, if you're a, a small group leader or elder or deacon, join me in the corners for, for anyone that wants to come for prayer. But where is your faith? Holy Spirit, would you speak to us now? Would you help us to identify a category of life right now that actually doesn't need a better strategy, it just needs patience? Holy Spirit, I pray that if there's something uh, for the listeners in this room that you just want them, there is a time to stand, there is a time to strategize and, and change. But if there's just something that you just want them to wait on 
I pray that you would just give them that permission to be patient. That patience is not passivity, patience is faith. And that in due time, Lord, you want to give us a gift, you want to give us a crop and not a mechanized output, that you want to give us fruit. Holy Spirit, I just ask, Lord, that you would give us even a supernatural understanding of how quick this life is. That you just maybe take us on a Job trip real quick and remember who you are and how good you are to us. That we might be humble and tend to what we can control. God, I pray that you would help us to bless you in the middle of the storm. I mean, there's got to be such pleasure and joy on your heart when you see a kid who you just want to reach out to and take the pain away so quickly, but you know you've got something bigger and better that you're doing. You just want to, you just want to get in there and interrupt that process. You want a helicopter parent us. But you're good, and you've put something in us that's going to persevere. You wouldn't have put us in the test if you didn't put us with the perseverance to withstand that test. And so I just pray, Lord, that you would give us a supernatural just ability to see beyond the, the, the circumstance and to praise you right now, to not have any regrets that we look back and say, man, I wish I wouldn't have just grumble through that season, that I would praise through the season. I pray that you would give us that opportunity now. And lastly, Lord, that you would just um, call up our natural affinity for prayer, that you would remove the pharisaical speech writing that we've been taught. And God, just put us back to kids talking to our dad. God, I pray that you would cause us to pray about the things that matter. I pray that you would cause us to talk about, stop praying about the weather and talk about the things that really matter. I pray, Lord, that you would make us people of prayer to be children that don't have to be experts. And Father, I just thank you, God, that you are gonna walk through us with us. This thing has come to us. You didn't cause it, but you wouldn't change it. And this thing has come to us to give us a great gift to be free of approval, to be free of addiction. Lord, to be free, to actually walk unbullied and unbribed in this moment, to be unfoolable, Lord, by the, by the ways and the sway of this world, Lord, to be people of wholeness, mature, lacking in nothing. So I thank you, God, for what you're doing, and I just pray that you would activate us and move us um, in the gift that you wanna bring. In Jesus' name, everybody said. Thanks again for joining us. If you have been encouraged or challenged by this message, please give us feedback by leaving a comment on this podcast. For more information on our church, visit us at www.citylights.cc.